Hello and welcome to the Classical Liberal Project. I am Jonathan Casey, uh, Chair of the Classical Liberal Caucus. With me, as always, is Joshua Eakle uh, on the board as well. And we've got Dave Smith of uh, part of the Problem Podcast. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for thanks for coming on. What's up, fellas? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. I was gonna. I wanted to give you a shout out early on, Dave, before we got into the whole shebang around NATO. Um, I think you were catching a little bit of criticism internally from some of the people in Mises about kind of coming on this show and having the conversation. And one of the things that you said was, you know, like if we can't change their mind, then it was something like we can't change their mind. It's not worth doing. You know, uh, having these conversations is like very important. And I really appreciate you like going out of your way to do this. So it really means a lot. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. What, what I said was that uh, it was uh, Karen Ann Harlos, who I love very dearly. Yep. And she said she was like, oh, you're just going to be getting more viewers to their channel. And I was like, well, yeah, but like if anyone like is a, they're coming here to watch your show because they're a fan of mine. Right. If they're more persuaded by what you have to say than what I have to say, then I deserve to lose them. Like, that's the correct answer. And if I'm like my whole thing, and I've always felt this way is like, well, I'm confident they won't be. So that's the whole point. And then yeah. I'm confident I'm more likely to at least get you guys or your audience to go. All right. He's got a good point on that or on that. And so but I mean, what shot, you know, the libertarians have if we can't do that? Anyway, so well said. yeah, we might no, as well I, pack it. We might as well pack it in if we can't if we don't feel like we can do that. Uh, I, I just yeah. wanted to say thank you for that early on. So that's great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I think we're going to have a great time. Sure. Awesome. Uh, I figure I figured. Oh, go ahead, Josh. No, I was going to let you take it away. Oh, there we go. I was going to go ahead and let everybody kind of introduce where they're at on NATO. Uh, Dave, if you want to lead us off, I'll go second. Josh can finish it off and then you can uh, go right into it. Sure. Well, I mean, I think uh, oof, what I think that. I, I think I oppose NATO in every sense that you could oppose it. I think it, in, you know, we as we kind of went back and forth on what we would talk about when we were talking about doing like a debate resolution. And I'm not, I, I understand where you could say like their mission or their, what they claim to be is, hey, we're in a defensive alliance. That's just here to like, if we're a group that if anyone attacks any of us, we're all going to defend ourselves. And however you would feel about entangling alliances, objectively, that's not what they are. Um, what, you know, in, in the same sense that, I don't know, if we're just going by what people call themselves, then the Patriot Act was patriotic. And, you know, then uh, I don't know, I think the Congo is a democratic republic, you know, like it's anyone can call themselves what they want to. In reality, NATO is the European uh, military alliance of the American empire. And that's that's the objective reality as far as I'm concerned. And we are nothing short of an empire, as everyone in this space knows, whatever the numbers exactly are today. So 700 bases in 135 countries or something like that. Now you think like 135 countries. How many Americans can name 30 countries? Yet we've got bases in over 130 of them. Um, and America is the most our federal government is the most war hungry government in the world in the 21st century there's really no arguing that there's no yeah. one who's invaded more countries bombed more countries uh killed more innocent people we truly are the greatest purveyors of violence in the world which is why all of our leaders sound like the biggest hypocrites in the world and they try to call vladimir putin out for being a war criminal it's like as the great scott horton likes to say like you're standing in a swimming pool filled with the blood of innocent people yelling at someone else about how they're wrong and NATO, uh, of course, has conducted several horrific aggressive wars. Um, they were, most recently, they were instrumental in the 20-year just disaster that was the war in Afghanistan. Um, they were also instrumental in the war in Libya. Both of these wars were, I mean, between the two of them were responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and just wreaked nothing but destruction um, in in all parts of the world. I mean, if Libya actually also led to a huge migrant crisis into Europe, all like, I mean, even the rise of like, say, like, um, far right political movements in Europe, which I'd imagine both of you guys would probably really oppose. It's very directly related to uh, NATO's war in, in Libya. Um, I think that it's been if, if you I believe it was Eisenhower said that if this thing isn't over in five years, then we failed when it first started and he was the head of NATO. Uh, basically, the idea was that we would stick around until France and Germany could defend themselves and then we'd be out of there. But of course, it's a government program. So government programs, you know, are the self-licking ice cream cone. Once there's not the reason to be there, then they just find a new reason. Of course, if you had listened to the propaganda from NATO for 50 years, then you would have, of course, assumed as soon as the Soviet Union collapsed, they would cease to exist because that was the whole point. 
But what did they do when the Soviet Union collapsed? They expanded. It's like, if that's not a government program, I don't know what is. The whole reason for existing goes away. And now you go, we need more power. We need to expand. I also think NATO has been incredibly provocative um, toward Russia and is a huge portion of the responsibility of the situation that we, we find ourselves in today in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, so overall, I just think it's, an, it's been an awful organization that is just, you know, like I said, the European wing of the American empire. Um, I think that you, it, you know, to me, it's kind of like, and this is where all of this started. I'll, I'll wrap up soon. Um, but the idea of NATO being like uh, consistent with the non-aggression principle or defensive or voluntary or any of this, look, I, I assume you, you guys are minarchists. I, I could be wrong about classical liberal. No, that's accurate. Yeah, for sure. In that, So even like to me, very quickly, the, the anarchist perspective, I think would be like to very quickly sum it up. Okay, we believe in the non-aggression principle and private property rights. And if you're following the non-aggression principle to its logical conclusion, you can't have a state at all. The minarchist position is more like the state should exist only to protect people's liberty. And if it does less than that, people's liberty is in jeopardy. If it does more than that, it's tyrannical. Okay. Fair, fair assessment. Yeah, I agree. So even from the minarchist perspective, I mean, all the member states of NATO, there's no night watchman state that's a member of NATO. These are modern super states, the biggest criminal organizations in the world. This is like saying like the Crips and the Bloods and the Latin Kings formed a, a fighting alliance together and then saying, but it's totally voluntary. Like, No, it's not. It's all based off what they've stolen from their communities and then funded this thing. And then, oh, they're defensive, except for when they're not, which is also true for like the Russian military. They're a defensive military, except all the times they're not, you know, like, um, so I don't know. I just think the whole, if there's anything libertarian should be, it's, we should be opposed to all of this and the best of the libertarian legacy, you know, like go read like Murray Rothbard during the cold war. This is what was so cool about libertarians is that we're like, Hey, we're the most anti-commie motherfuckers out there. And we reject the cold war because we recognize that that's just commie shit too. Like that's just more communism. And this is, it's like what Bill Buckley said. We need a, you know, totalitarian bureaucracy in our shores. And we're like, no, we don't. So, of course, I think the libertarian position is to reject every inch of, of NATO and at the very least push for America to get out of it. OK, done. Done there. All right. I'll go real quick because I've got a very I've got the most boring position on this. My opinion is America should get out of NATO, stay out and Europe should be left to the defense of Europe. If there was a case, I could I can imagine a situation where we would need to come to the defense of Europe like we did in World War Two. But that should be our decision to make alone. That's it. Um, and that, that, so that's my position as, like I said, it's short and boring. So I'll hit it over to Josh. Yeah. So, okay. So I think where the core of our disagreement comes in is, uh, cause you, I think you and I on our Twitter thread, we went back and forth about this. We, we both are very much opposed to NATO intervention in, in Bosnia and in Serbia and, uh, in uh, Afghanistan. And I think the most recent one was in Libya. Uh, but I think the core of where our disagreement is, is I see NATO as less of a purveyor of that. And I see more of that as something caused by U.S. military action. And I see NATO as kind of a separate from that. And I'll kind of set that up and maybe explain why I think that is. Um, but overall, I think NATO is very voluntary, um, as which, we, which I think we might agree on. It's kind of a voluntary organization. You can choose to stay, choose to leave. And it's structurally defensive. Like it's set up in a way to not be an offensive aggressor towards other people. Uh, it might, as I think you alluded to, uh, have had made decisions in the past to support U.S. aggression and kind of come alongside them and maybe uh, act in that way. But overall, I don't think the institution is set up to do that. I don't think the institution does that. Um, and I don't think the or the institution uh, like is designed to do that and is structurally set up that way. And there, one of the things I'll touch on before structural before I get into the some of the other points you made, Dave, and then we can go back and forth was. Um, when I say NATO is structurally defensive, I'm referring specifically to the fact that NATO has never started a war. So the U.S. government has, um, and, I, and I think that's a proven fact. Like we agree with, there is there has been probably no other more aggressive organization other than the U.S. government. They have, you know, create, tried to do regime, regime change across the world. They've, they've done a lot of very bad things that we both agree with or disagree with. But NATO itself has never started a war or led an offensive conflict. Um, NATO has never dragged someone into a war that they didn't want to be dragged into. I mean, structurally, again, NATO requires a unanimous vote for Article 5. Um, and also, you can leave at any time. And in order to join, you have to have unanimous support to join that institution, that organization. 
Um, and then I think that NATO is less of a military organization because NATO really is just made up of member states that have militaries that kind of agree to do things together sometimes. And it's more of kind of like a political organization uh, that reduces that I think in action reduces tension and overall uh, results in less conflict, especially in Europe and in that kind of area. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you mentioned that I'd like to dig into that I wanted to go back and forth with you on that I think are some nuance. Like you mentioned NATO expansion. You, you mentioned the fact that NATO has been provocative towards Russia. I think you mentioned uh, that it's kind of acted aggressively in Europe. Um, and so I want to get into those. Uh, but I think the first thing I was going to ask you before we even got into the nuance was one simple question. Um, if you could change anything. So if Dave Smith could have anything he wanted here. Um, is what would you be able to make any changes or recommendations to NATO that you think would make it more compatible with libertarianism and kind of your perspective on the world? Is there anything that you that NATO could change structurally about itself that would maybe be more in line that Dave Smith would think, okay, that's something that I can endorse? And the reason I ask this is because I think people like somebody that I know you respect, like Hoppe, for example, has come out and said that like there is a place for defensive alliances. You and I agreed on this on the thread, like defensive alliance, mm -hmm. military alliances are in line with libertarianism. But what would you change about NATO specifically that maybe would be more in line with worldview? Oh, okay. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think in theory, a defensive alliance could be in line with libertarianism. My argument is that NATO is not a defensive alliance. Um, I also still, even though it's within, like, it could be, theoretically, a defensive alliance could be consistent with libertarian principles. They're yeah. still very tricky things. This is why, like, our founders warned us against entangling alliances. It's not because they were, like, these strict anarcho-capitalists or something like that they were just saying like look you know if you make war guarantees to somebody else this can have the effect of spreading a war much wider and in fact this has led to much wider wars than we would otherwise have in the past they're very dangerous things so i'm i'm not saying they in theory couldn't be consistent with libertarianism but i think yeah. they should still be like you should be very concerned about entering into them um okay that being said okay i kind of agree oh, oh let me answer i'm sorry let me finish answering your question and then i'll respond yeah, yeah. to some of what you said <clears throat> I mean, look, I'm one of these people, and I think this this gets libertarians triggered sometimes. I'm like, at least in my opinion, maybe not in some of yours, but I'm a I'm a very like hardcore radical purist libertarian. But I try my best not to make the perfect the enemy of the good. So I'd be happy with anything that was a little bit better than the status quo. So like what would make NATO better? Well, what would make them better? I, I don't know. I think if they signed a pledge to never admit Ukraine in exchange for Vladimir Putin giving back, you know, a ceasefire and at least giving back some of the territory, I'd be happy with whatever led to less bloodshed in the moment and took the threat of nuclear war, at least to some degree off the table. Better than that would be America pulling out of NATO, which, by the way, if we were to do that and negotiate with Putin, we could get whatever we wanted. Just to be clear right now, now there's no political chance that that's going to happen under current conditions but if we were to say to vladimir putin america will leave nato if you leave we could get whatever we want because that'd be such a bigger victory for him than keeping the donbass region you know what i mean like yeah, maybe sure. not crimea but we could get anything else we wanted um that would be, that would be better better than that would be the whole thing being absolved okay but let me just re respond to to a couple things you said it's not that I'm disagreeing with you that America, yeah, yes, America's running the show. Washington, D.C. is who's running the show. I'm not claiming that NATO is dragging them into wars, but NATO is our European outlet. And in fact, it, you agreed that you, you, know, you think the, the, the war in Syria, uh, excuse me, the war in Serbia was, yeah. was horrible. NATO was the excuse for that. We couldn't get a U.N. resolution and, because Russia had veto power. And so Bill Clinton just broke the law and just said, we're just going to do it through NATO. And even though we had promised this was going to be transitioning to like a political, a political organization, well, no, it's not a political organization when it's launching aggressive wars. And that was the excuse, was that we're doing it through NATO. So that's kind of just as good as the UN, even though it's a violation of international law. And by the way, this had a huge impact on our relationship with Russia. In fact, this is if you listen to uh, Vladimir Putin's the speech before that he gave two, but if you listen to his speeches before he, he invaded Ukraine, this is one of the things that he blasted us for in that kind of typical Putin way where he has this dry Russian sense of humor, like where he was like, uh, he goes, well, I mean, there's an ethnic minority being targeted, so it's totally justified to invade. Right, Bill Clinton? 
And then he was like, we got to check out about weapons of mass destruction, right, George W. Bush? And he kind of like went down the list of American presidents. And look, even if you're completely against Putin invading, as I am, you got to at least admit, man, we hand him this great talking point of what hypocrites we are to stay like what ground do we have to stand on to be like, you know, you can't invade a sovereign country. You can't kill innocent people. Like, yeah, OK, like anyone's going to listen to the United States of America talk about that. But so anyway, no, it's not. This isn't again, I'm saying it's not voluntary. And, and my look, I understand. And I'm sorry, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you in a sec. But I understand like the argument of like it's voluntary in the sense that, you know, normies think of it like France left and came back. OK, they can leave. And I guess we're not really forcing governments to join. I mean, if they don't want to, we might sponsor a colored revolution and then put in a regime that wants to. OK, but more or less, it's like the nations can decide. But what you were saying on Twitter and these god-awful takes, is that you're like, it is the non-aggression principle applied. And it's consistent with libertarianism, and it's defensive. And so, like, by the libertarian definition of voluntary, like, no, it's not. It's funded by stolen money. And, like, even from the minarchist perspective, it's funded by stolen money. So it's none of those things. It's just, yes, we, Washington, D.C. is the empire. NATO is our satellite. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't oppose our satellite just because they're not in charge. Okay, a couple thoughts on that. So uh, there's uh, four or five things that I think you mentioned that I want to dig into because sure. I think you also alluded to some stuff at the very beginning, which I think is also interesting to get into. So first and foremost, I think one of the things that I would like to say, if I had the magic wand and I could create a dream world where, you know, it's just, you know, theoretical, uh, I would love to see a, a NATO return to its kind of pre-USSR, no military action, just simply a defensive alliance, right? There's no any intervention period it's just we all agree to do this right so that would be the ideal the ideal case for me and i i think that i just wanted to say that first because you you had kind of alluded to that um before we get into the funding with stolen money and the hypocrisy because i agree with you the u.s is of all organizations probably one of the most hypocritical on this because again we just got finished with a 20-year regime change war and lecturing somebody else is pretty hypocritical now that's not to downplay the fact that putin is killing innocent people and launching an invasion no matter what we did that doesn't really change the fact that that's evil and wrong and it's taking you know liberty and life from people that they shouldn't uh, lose but you can we talk about nato expansion first so one of the things that you'd mentioned earlier that nato is expanding and that putin had kind of mentioned that in his speech as to why one of the reasons why he invaded Ukraine. Um, one of the things that I think you mentioned, and I, I did watch your appearance on Joe Rogan. It was great to have libertarian voices there um, talking about these ideas on, on a, such a huge platform, was this not one inch east thing. Uh, that mm -hmm. I think Putin even mentioned this in his speech, like we're not going to go one inch east. Um, the, the narrative around that, I think, is, is wrong for a couple of reasons. So first and foremost, there was a treaty signed in 1990 by Gorbachev in the, in the United States that didn't have any sort of NATO commitment whatsoever. And I think you're probably aware of this. Like There was never a time where we, in a writing, in a treaty, in any agreement said, we're not expanding east. But I also take issue with the idea that NATO, like calling it NATO expansion almost, I think, uh, is, a, is a problematic way to describe it in and of itself. And the reason I say that is because it kind of in, insinuates that it's an involuntary action. And one of the things about NATO expansion post-1990 was it was driven by these countries that independently decided the, you know, that they wanted to associate with NATO. It's not like we forced them to do that. They voluntarily made this decision to do that. And um, this happened over and over again. And in, in a way, Russian aggression, like in the late, in the tooth, in the aughts, right? actually escalated the situation and made it more likely. And it's one of the reasons why Finland and Sweden are thinking about doing it now is because they feel insecure, threatened by, you know, this old, this, this superpower, this nuclear superpower, and they want to associate with somebody who's going to give them autonomy. I mean, like the requirements to join NATO uh, are very in line, I think, with with things that we agree with. Like if you want to, if you want to be a part of NATO, you, you can't have a territorial dispute. So Ukraine's out and Ukraine's been out since 2008 when they were rejected, but they have to uphold democracy. They have to be making progress towards a free market. They've got to uh, have their military forces under civilian control. They can't have any disputes. As I mentioned earlier, they can't be like have a Crimea occupied and then join. Um, and they have to be working towards compatibility with NATO. So like, again, when you look at the entire picture, it, calling it expansion almost is, it feels to me like, um, like we're downplaying this as an independent people saying, I want to associate with this group. Well, and as libertarians, well, okay, well, I think we should say that's okay. 
well, uh, it's not independent people saying they want to join with this group. It's it's gigantic modern nation states saying they want to join with this group. Just do you think okay, the Baltic yeah. states chose well, to join NATO or were they pushed into it? Well, I mean, a mix of both. I mean, I don't know. They're bribed with essentially like free defense. So like, yeah, it's a, I'm not but I'm not even arguing that they chose. I'm just you said it's independent people. That's objectively okay, so, false. It's, well, hold on. Let me respond. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah, so go much for it, there. It's like, OK, so it's not now. First off, the term expansion does not imply anything involuntary. You could talk about a business expanding. The term expansion just implies that you're getting bigger and taking over more and more area, which is objectively what's going on. And um, so, you know, if, if you can say that you you liked the original, you know, kind of goal of the of NATO, even though the stated reason for existing doesn't exist post-Soviet Union, but okay. But that was like, you know, west of the Elbe River. <laughs> that's, you know, so that's a kind of whole different ball game. Now, in terms of NATO expansion, I want to get into a few of these things because it's not just that Putin mentions that NATO expansion was something that he that was a provocation to him and he believed was a security concern. And this isn't even just something like that you'd go, look, from the very beginning in the 90s, it's not as if there was, it was just Ron Paul and Harry Brown, like our, you know, tradition of ideas who were people warning against this, that this would be a provocation to Russia and that we shouldn't expand NATO. It's not just, it, it wasn't them. It wasn't just like the dissidents, like Pat Buchanan or Noam Chomsky or something like that. Like the wisest people within the national security apparatus, many uh, former um, um, secretaries of defense, Robert, Robert McNamara, um, uh, 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 Robert Gates, um, who was the CIA director at the time, um, who was later, of course, George W. Bush's uh, defense secretary and then Obama's defense secretary, um, William Perry, who was Bill Clinton's secretary. Uh, there's, there, I mean, you could go on and on of all of these people within the national security apparatus who were like, no, this is a really bad idea. George Kennan, who was the champion cold warrior, the founder of the containment strategy, the guy, you know, like Robert McNamara and George Kennan, the people who like fought the Vietnam War, you know what I mean? Like slaughtered millions of innocent people for nothing in the name of this containment strategy. Even they were like, there's a great piece, it was in the New York Times, uh, where Thomas Friedman is interviewing George Kennan, the Cold Warrior. He's like in his 90s at this point, and he's losing his mind. And he's like, what are you guys doing? We just won the Cold War, and now you're starting another Cold War. Why would we even be talking about doing this? And he predicted that he goes, this NATO expansion is going to continue and continue, and then Russia is going to re react. And then everyone who was on board with the NATO expansion is going to say, see, look, this is why we had to expand this whole time. And this is exactly what's happened. And every single one of these people, the reason they warned against this, it wasn't for just like pure libertarian reasons, which, by the way, all of us should agree with that, like, you know, this whole thing is a giant government program. We're subsidizing the defense of Europe, who's who has wealth, has less debt than we have. Why are we doing this? It's going to lead to like all the problems that government programs have. They all had one unanimous objection that this was going to provoke Russia. And let me just fast forward a little bit because I think you got like your your facts wrong about what happened and what led to what. Like, yes, there were more and more states that wanted to join NATO, but here was the real deal, right? Okay. And have you have either of you guys ever read the Nyet means Nyet uh, memo from the CIA director Burns? He's current CIA director. He was the ambassador to Russia at the time. No, but I'm okay. happy to learn. So. Okay, so yeah. let me see if I can actually pull this up so I can read it to you and not just like kind of give you my. Uh, my best recollection of it. Okay, here, I have it very recent on my phone here. Okay, so uh, um, Julian Assange got us this document and sacrificed his life to do so. So in 2008, the current CIA director, Burns, he was the ambassador to Russia. And he wrote this memo to uh, Condoleezza Rice. This was in, uh, I believe, February of uh, 2008. It was, uh, let me just double check that it's February. But I'm pretty sure, yes, it was February 2008, okay? So in February 2008, he writes this memo to Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State at the time. And this is what he said. He said, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. In more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian players, from knuckle-draggers in the darkest recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine in NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. 
He also wrote, it would be hard to overstate the strategic consequences of bringing Ukraine into NATO. It will, and this is his words, it will create fertile soil for Russian meddling in Crimea and Ukraine. Three months after that, at the Bucharest summit, they announced that, uh, that uh, Ukraine and Georgia would be entering NATO. Three months after that, Russia went to war in, uh, in Georgia. Correct. Now, this is not like the idea that all of these people were predicting, you do this, this will happen. Then they did this, then this happened. And then you go, oh, that's so crazy to think there was a relationship between the two. Well, Look, I don't I have, actually... You saw me on, on... I'm sorry, let me just say yeah. this and then I'll pass back. Yeah, go for it. As go you saw it. me on Rogan, and I'm very proud that I got this in front of like 30, 40 million people. Um, even Gideon Rose, the, the editor of Foreign Affairs magazine, the, the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations, he goes, as he was talking about, we're trying to steal Ukraine away from Russia. He goes, now the risk here is that Russia invades Ukraine. That's the risk, that they could knock over the chess table, as, as he said. And Colbert's like, could he invade? Like, yeah, he could. But we'll distract him with the Olympics. We'll do all this other stuff. And then through the Trump years, it's like, oh, we'll send in these weapons, but it'll be enough to deter Russia from invading. Well, it looks like it either didn't deter them or maybe it even provoked them into doing it. So, again, I'm not saying Vladimir Putin has no responsibility for this. I just think it's insane for anyone who's actually followed this to, like, not even consider the possibility that moving your hostile military alliance all the way up to someone else's borders while the whole time they're screaming, I have security concerns about this. This is this is a real threat to our national security when we would we know we would do the same. We have a fucking Monroe Doctrine. If any faraway power ever tried to fucking bring Mexico or Canada into their military alliance, we'd go to fucking war with them over that. And we all know this. So why can't we just put the shoe on the other foot and go, okay, he's wrong for invading. He's a thug and a war criminal. All our politicians are thugs and war criminals. But he's at least got a point on that. So I, I don't think that we should, uh, you know... I guess the Monroe Doctrine is actually interesting because that was something I was going to mention. I mean, we, I don't think we should let Russia's Monroe Doctrine determine the future of Ukrainians. Does that make sense? So really, the core of what I'm going what I'm trying to touch on here is, is that um, now you and I, I think this was one of the things that when I was thinking about this conversation before we we're going to have it, I had a feeling that we were going to have a really big sticking point on whether governments can represent their people. And I think you touched on that earlier. Criminal gangs. Sure. Criminal gangs, I think, can still have voluntary interactions and relationships with each other. So I think that's an important distinction to make. Like you could still be a criminal gang and then have a voluntary agreement with another criminal gang. So I think that dynamic mm -hmm. is, is notable. Um, but I also think that we have to operate under the assumption that, uh, at least for the sake of the conversation, that governments at least are there to represent people. And even if they aren't, um, let's just say hypothetically in the United States, we have one military. And obviously you think the military should have no association with NATO. I think it should. So I think that that's why we have representative democracy is to kind of sort through those issues, answer that question, because we can't like split the military down the middle and make that decision. So I think that is a, a kind of a note that I'd like to touch on early. Well, but, I don't just I'll just one quick thing. I don't but, operate under the assumption that governments are representatives of their people because I'm a libertarian. I, I understood. Like, now, there are there's obviously flaws to be made. There's massive flaws in the way that governments operate. But I think that, that like, for example, representative democracies are far more uh, aligned with representing their people than like Putin's Russian imperial uh, you know, authoritarian states. And so again, some are better than others, but we have to have systems in place to make these decisions and no system's going to be perfect. Some are more perfect than others. Um, but I actually don't think that's worth talking about. Cause I feel like you and I would probably go back and forth on that for a long. That's basically the minarchist versus anarchist argument. Well, right? I don't even think it is. I don't think it's a minarchist versus anarchist split. I think you could be a minarchist and completely recognize that the idea that our government, look, if you were to look at the most unpopular uh, federal policies in the last hundred years. You know what would rank right up at the top were the banker bailouts of 2008. Absolutely. What did we just say? Another round of banker bailouts. We're probably going to get more. The idea that because we get to vote for either Trump or Biden in 2020, and therefore they represent us, I think is 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 a naivete of the highest order, especially for a libertarian. None but of again, these governments do you think, represent do you us. I think that you have to look at with the Baltic states and the other states that joined NATO. If you look at their populations, they are very glad they're in NATO. They are yeah, they, sure. like I don't think I don't you can have any, dis any dispute that, not, that they that they did that, that those populations absolutely chosen wanted to be in NATO because to be in NATO you have to fundamentally change. I mean, they did this in 14 years. They went from yes. USSR to representative democracy with open free market, with mostly free markets, right? 
That's that they 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 chose that path on purpose because they were afraid. They are afraid of Russia, and it's not just because of warnings. I mean, we the NATO did sit down with with Russia and hold their hand through a lot of this. In '97, there was the NATO Russian yeah. defending it. In 2001, I mean, look, so we had we had a we had an uh, there was a NATO office in Moscow until 2021. Uh, so it's not like we didn't reach out to them. It's not like we didn't say talk to them and say, hey, we're not going to throw a bunch of troops or nukes into these new countries. Well, so we, I, we did we did to, talk yeah. to them about that. There's there's some truth to that. You could also look at it from the other perspective that they talked to to NATO. I mean, Russia at one point wanted to join NATO. Now you yes. can make arguments on either side about like exactly how they proceeded. You know, Russia certainly had a level, which I think personally, I think is kind of understandable that they were like, hey, we want to join NATO, and they were like, well, you can get in line and apply, and they were like, no, we're Russia. We're like the well, whole if reason you, NATO uh, listen, now, if, if Russia I, was willing I, to go down that path, let them. Well, okay, but I'm I'm just saying you could make arguments on either side. Okay, there 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 were times when, and actually, there was a point when the relationship with Russia and NATO was not nearly as toxic as 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 it is today. Yes, I'm sure. not arguing. I mean, I don't know, but I I probably agree with you that probably people in the Baltic states wanted to join NATO, and I think in general, like I would understand why a lot of people in countries that are like small countries near Russia would want to be a part of NATO. Like, right. why wouldn't you want the most badass, you know, military in the world kind of guaranteeing, not exactly guaranteeing, but kind of guaranteeing your defense and also kind of subsidizing your defense? So, yeah, I'm not well, saying I, there's nothing there. I'm yeah. making the point that we shouldn't do it. I'm saying we shouldn't bring them in because the dangers are far worse than the rewards for us. And if you're saying that the the idea is that the government is supposed to represent the American people, the government here in the United States of America, well, then the truth is that, like, look, it sucks that little countries get bullied by big countries. We're the biggest bullies out of all of them. I'd like us to first work on not being bullies to little countries. I'd also like other big countries to stop being bullies. But this, what we're engaging in right now, is the most insane, reckless policy perhaps in the history of the United States of America. We're, flirt we're closer to a nuclear conflict right now than we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. For what? But who's, For whether who's, this most corrupt government in Ukraine gets to maintain their sovereignty, who's not even a NATO member, by the way. It's not like They're not even a NATO country. But like what? The, like the most corrupt government in Europe versus what? The other most corrupt government in Europe where, where there's historical ties? Where, like, I don't know. Do you guys really like think like, even as minarchists, do you really think, like, the lines on a map are drawn perfectly? Is it so clear that Crimea is supposed to be a part of Ukraine or even that the Donbass is supposed to be a part of Ukraine? I don't – I wish Vladimir Putin didn't invade. I hate that there's innocent people dying. But the idea that we should be – what we're engaged in right now is just utter madness. Like, you got the president of the United States openly talking about how the goal here is to overthrow Vladimir Putin multiple times saying this by the way according to the former defense secretary william perry and i i assume he might be right about this he says vladimir putin believes that's the policy of the united states of america to kill him now he's got no way of actually hurting us he's got no way of taking over europe this guy was sitting on a 1.5 trillion dollar gdp before the war he's he's struggling to win this current conflict he's not reconstituting the soviet union he's not getting anywhere near the original nato countries he's not taking over poland it's just not happening but he does have the biggest nuclear arsenal in the freaking world and we're telling him we're going to kill you and you're going to lose a, a war right on your border like this is fucking madness dude if libertarians believe in anything it's like yeah you don't get involved in shit like this and why is it what like why is everyone supposed to pretend we care so much about the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine? It's like the same thing as that they did with Kosovo. Oh, Bill Clinton's like, hey, you know, there's all these people. There's a genocide, which wasn't. But he said there was there's a genocide going on in, in Serbia. Meanwhile, he's bombing the shit out of Iraq, starving children to death with the sanctions. Meanwhile, Rwanda's going on. He's not doing anything about that. East Timor's going on. He's not doing anything about that. No, he was doing this to fuck with Russia. I'm like, that's what that's my thing with libertarians, like fucking peep game, guys. We know what these guys are doing. This isn't a human. If we had if we cared about humanitarianism, we'd fucking we'd have made Saudi end the war in Yemen seven years ago. We'd have made like we wouldn't be doing half the thing. Well, where's the humanitarian Let's outrage for what's going on to the Palestinians? Yeah. I, and see, I don't disagree with any of that, um, but I will at least the, the indication on Yemen and the Palestinian situation. But let's go back to a couple things. So. Uh, <laughs> 
for, first and foremost, you made the record, a record. I wasn't that... like yelling at you guys on that. This no, I know. I know. Just quick, quick yeah. point. Quick point. At the very beginning of this, as far as humanitarian goes, at the beginning of this, I wrote an article saying that we shouldn't get boots on the ground in Ukraine and we should open our borders to Ukrainian refugees. Yeah, those are those I... are your those are your humanitarian. That's your humanitarian solution. And I, I agree with that completely. Um, but I mean, going back no, to you the probably point, don't, Dave, but there you go. Well, I, I'd say I'd say we should work toward negotiating a peace and a ceasefire. It doesn't really make too much sense to me that Ukrainians are going to immigrate all the way okay. over the United States of America. But r regardless of that, map. I'd say I'd say right now, all uh, like the, the best thing we could do is to just say, like, look, we are willing to give these concessions and tell Ukraine you must negotiate with them or you get no more support. We have so much leverage over Ukraine right now. This is let's, work out a deal. Talk about it's that not going to be perfect. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. I know Josh was trying to jump in there, yeah, but no, let me, let me it, yeah. hit on this topic real quick. So <clears> let's <throat> say we do negotiate a peace with Ukraine, with Russia and between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Russia is going to say you can't join NATO to Ukraine. You can't join NATO, and is also going to you're going to need to disarm. What's going to stop it's Russia? Probably in five, give away in five the Donbass and Crimea. Yeah, and probably give huh? a part of the what's what's to stop Russia from invading in another few years when Russia well, when Ukraine off, is not a member of NATO has no and no can wait one more thing that I want to add, Dave, Dave, mm -hmm. and then I hand it off to you is that um, sure. we the way that we responded in 2014 I think is in line with what I hear from uh, from from people like you and from people from a lot of people in in the political space right now is we should just kind of let them take Donbass, let them take Crimea, make a promise that that Ukraine will never join NATO and then just we'll have peace. But I think that 2014 proves that's not the case. Uh, like we kind of turned the other, the other way when it happened, when the annexation of Crimea happened in 2014. And now we're dealing with another full scale invasion. And, uh, and I don't think that will actually reduce war. Like if I would make an argument that if uh, Ukraine joined NATO in 2008, probably wouldn't even be dealing with an invasion today. But um, I'm curious as to what, what your thoughts are. So I don't know exactly what was turning the other way about 2014. I mean, was compare the, compare the difference it, between on, the way it responded then and now. I mean, it's significantly well, different. Well, <clears throat> before Vladimir Putin took, it's so even ridiculous to say he took Crimea. He had Crimea the whole time. It's just he had his naval base was there. It was a majority ethnic Russian area. Russia has had Crimea since 1783. Like I, I don't even know what this means that he took it. I don't think he, that's... yes. When they finally said we're not playing along with this deal anymore, at, when the new uh, Poroshenko government came in and said we're tearing up your lease his men left their naval base and said no you're not they didn't even i mean he did send some backups in but it's not even like it was an invasion he had all he needed right there they weren't taking and we're not taking crimea back this is not happening but regardless to say like oh we did nothing when he took crimea well no okay earlier that year and in the previous year late 2013 we didn't do nothing we had john mccain and lindsey graham and victoria newland making multiple trips over there amy klobuchar uh, klobuchar too yeah and I, i'm not uh, saying we did I'm nothing correctly. i'm saying we did we very sent, little compared to bill, <clears throat> no we didn't we sent billions of dollars into into ukraine for years before the maidan uh revolution as it's called um that we were always promoting pro-democracy groups which really you know we promote democracy in the country, even though, by the way, there's no question that Yanukovych was democratically elected. The uh, elections were verified by the EU, but we're still promoting all these pro-democracy groups. We're not promoting democracy so much in, say, like Egypt or Saudi Arabia or, you know, like uh, uh, Palestine or any of that. We're not respecting the wishes of democracy in Iraq when they ask us to leave. But we really cared about democracy on Russia's bordering country because we're such great people. Okay. And then, no, listen, and now we can argue about the coup of 2014. It was absolutely sponsored and funded by the west and like this was a response to that the democratically elected government was overthrown by a violent street putsch and they decided to tear up the lease uh for the naval base in crimea and vladimir putin said fuck that so for you to then take that start at crimea and go we didn't do anything about that it's like no dude you got to get out of this empire mindset we can't do anything about that there's no question we can't do that in the same way that understand this. Let's say we built uh, we have Guantanamo Bay on Cuba. OK, do you think Vladimir Putin should let us? If I were to ask you the question, should Vladimir Putin let America have Guantanamo Bay? Wouldn't you immediately just start chuckling to yourself like he can't stop? <laughs> He's not letting us or stopping us. There's just no issue. We so I, fuck him I up. think that's you same... want to come over here and fight us. That's what Crimea is. And I think that same logic carries over to Ukraine. So when I say that is I, I believe that the Ukrainian people have a right to determine their future. And I don't think it's as cut and dry for the narrative that I, I've heard you mention. I agree with that, that statement, by the way. Okay. And, right and that's I think that, future, but 
they and, and and here's the thing. Like, so actually, let me ask you this: If you lived in Ukraine in 2014 and you were watching what would happen with Yanukovych, like in the middle of the night, we're changing our plan. We were going to go partner with the West, where you could have free trade and uh, liberalism, right? Like the ability to have freedom of speech and not be like all these different things that are very very different than what you would deal with if you were moving to be more aligned with Russia. Would you be on the ground fighting against that? Because I would be. I know many people in my work that that were on the ground fighting for that. And so I don't, and not only that, but I don't, I don't think the narrative that this is a, is a, is a Western led coup is uh, even if it was, even if there was, let's say Western resources that were put into it. I, I think that the people of Ukraine saw what was happening. Uh, it's the same thing that's happened in Georgia last week, uh, two weeks ago, they see the they're, they're torn between two great powers. They could either go with liberalism where they could have freedom of speech, free trade. I mean, all these things that are, we take for granted the United States, or they could go become part of the the Russian the Russian uh, war machine, the Russian Russian imperialism. Um, where Russia was, Russia was pouring a lot of money into Ukraine at the time too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, no one's denying that. Sure. Absolutely. So, so I but think look, the Ukrainian people well, should have the right to make that decision, and then I, I don't, don't think if, Russia's uh, Monroe Doctrine should should be should determine whether you know like. Like that should yes, influence I mean, them. They should have the right to determine their future. If they wanted to join Ukraine, they should have been able to, assuming the Yes, in, a, in an ideal world, like, yes, and Iraq should have a right to not confront us. But if, like, Vladimir Putin started, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I mean, Iraq should have a right to kick us out of Iraq. And, like, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Now, um, first off, I don't exactly think I take for granted free speech and free trade in America. <laughs> I, mean, I think I wish we okay. had more of it. Um, I don't <laughs> sure. know. Like this, this kind of representation that the EU represents like just these classical liberal values is like so remote Better than Russia. Let's it, it, it definitely represents liberalism far more than Russia. No, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I agree with that at all. I mean, Russia's got its own, like, look, they're all bad options, but the truth is that what happened with the EU deal with Yanukovych was that the EU was making very harsh demands, so, severe uh, um, austerity, uh, all these like anti-corruption measures. But when you really look at them, it's just like turn yourself over to the EU corruption rather than our corruption. And then Vladimir Putin came in and he, he played like a one man, good cop, bad cop kind of. He went like, well, you go with them, then I'm shutting off all your trade. You go with me, you get $5 billion, no strings attached, no austerity, none of this, and kind of won them back over. I do think Yanukovych wanted to make the deal initially. He was in a very difficult spot politically. I don't know what I would have sided with being in Ukraine. Like, I'll, I'll talk about this conflict, and I've, I've studied up on it a lot. I, I think even for me, and I'm, a, I, I'm not a very humble person, but this might be the moment where I go, I don't know enough about like what it is to be a Ukrainian to say how I would feel in that moment. I do that's know that's, that's the tricky part. Yes. Well, we just don't, we don't know the, their personalities or culture. Yeah. Look, well, according to the Washington post, and there was a whole bunch of uh, uh, polling, some more reliable than others is how the Washington post put it. There's the, the protesters in the streets in Maidan never had a majority support of the Ukrainian people. Um, so the, the idea that it's just like, oh, this was all like, like, I think this is you swallowing, at least to some degree, Western propaganda to say like, this was a battle between one side, which was like freedom and goodness and everything right. And the other side, which was death and Russia and authoritarianism. I, That's yeah. not really the reality of the situation. The Yanukovych government was incredibly corrupt. Um, no question. I mean, like outrageously corrupt. Ukraine's a corrupt. Dude, I, I remember this. It's been a while since I read this. So I might get these details wrong a little bit. But Yanukovych's son, I believe, I'm pretty sure he was a dentist and he was the fifth richest man in Ukraine. Yeah, like I don't that's think how, anyone's going to That's how transparent the corruption one. is over there. There, there's a, like, there was a massive amount. Of, there, there, there is, probably still is. There's almost guaranteed oh, still ton. is. Absolutely the, the, corruption Yanukovych in That's not an argument. was incredibly corrupt. Poroshenko's yes. government and uh, Zelensky's government now, incredibly corrupt. And the other thing that just doesn't really get reported that much is how insane this fucking Zelensky government has been. They have banned almost all the political opposition parties, nationalized the media. They're fucking banning certain religious uh, ceremonies. Like, this is pretty wild shit. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's not like this black and white thing that all of the American politicians try to make it out to be. Oh, this is good versus evil. No, it's not. This is a country that, like, again, I think it's like, it's not, I do agree with you in principle. All people should have a right to self-determination. 
That Absolutely. doesn't mean America ought to be the policeman of the world. And this has been, uh, to me at least, this has been like the wisdom of the entire classical liberal and libertarian like history of thought is understanding that it's like, look, yes, we have these principles. We believe in liberty and individual liberty, but we also recognize that there's like these limits to reality. And for you to become the force that's going to like, you need local enforcement, universal, you know, values okay if you're going to become the force that is now going to police the world and enforce uh, who uh, we're going to enforce na uh, uh, natural uh, human rights on every human throughout the planet you're going to be the biggest oppressive force in the world which america is right now let so me, can i unless yeah. josh you have a really let, let me refocus our discussion real quick sure, what I was about to do. because i think we've gotten to the point on ukraine where you say that we've bought into uh, western propaganda and we're going to say that you've bought into russian propaganda right so we're just going to disagree. We're probably never going to get to agree on that. So I think let's move on to that and go kind of refocus back on on NATO itself. Because okay, you can I just the, say just one be... thing just very quickly yeah, 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 and I, just to respond to that? Yeah. It's like the, it's not it is Western propaganda that Zelensky is this great guy and runs this democracy sure. or something like that. It's sure. what I'm saying. If, if you're going to accuse me of buying into Russian propaganda, then George I'm Kennan, not. I just, the, founder, I'm just saying the founder of the containment strategy, bought into Russian propaganda. Like you're, there's it's just. I, I think there's an asymmetry in those two claims, but whatever, we can move on to, to something else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just to keep the me, discussion you, moving. Go ahead. Yeah. Josh. So we, uh, one of the things you mentioned was that we need to fight the war machine. We need to fight, you know, I think that was one of the things you ended off there with was, you know, if we're, if we're going to go back to liberal values, we need to make sure that the U S is in, involved, involved less in foreign intervention, not the world policeman, which is something that I agree with a million percent. Um, one of the things that um, that I think we brought up at the beginning that we weren't really able to dig into is that I think that NATO's existence, in essence, actually creates less instances in which U.S. is is likely to be involved in conflicts. And what I mean by that is that, well, first and foremost, we've already established very clearly that NATO has not created or caused conflicts. Almost every single conflict that NATO has been involved in has been kind of driven by this U.S. intervention that we talked about, if, with, with some exceptions. Um, but ending NATO tomorrow wouldn't change the military-industrial conflicts in the United States. In fact, it actually might serve as, a, as an argument for the war hawks to increase spending. Um, if we actually operated the way it should operate, which is that 2% level, I think right now the U.S. is somewhere near 4% of GDP. If we are at 2% level and everyone else in Europe reached their 2% level, which I strongly believe they should do, everyone else that's part of the alliance should reach that 2% level, it would actually create a situation in which theoretically uh, the Europe could be subsidizing U.S. defense in a way, right? I mean, we could save $400 billion if we went back to a 2% level. Um, and so I, this goes back to the thing that I think we talked about at the very beginning is like, I don't think the issue that we have, the issue we both have with world police, with all this foreign intervention, is something that is driven by NATO. I think uh, it actually, because of the way that NATO operates with all the member states, it has created an environment in which there's likely less conflict for the U.S. to even get involved in. I mean, you look at NATO, Europe post-NATO and pre-NATO, and at least between the member states, the conflict has significantly reduced. And the World War One, World War II were us getting involved in conflicts that were caused by people that are now member states of NATO. Um, and so I, so I think that you actually create an environment, if you abolish it completely, you leave it, you blow it up, whatever, where you're more likely to see conflicts spill over and us get pulled into some sort of war. Um, it's the same thing that we talked about earlier with Ukraine. Like, I think that it truly, if Ukraine was able to, and they obviously weren't, right? They were corrupt. There were a lot of problems with Ukraine, that, why they shouldn't, they, they didn't join the alliance and they probably shouldn't have. But if they were able somehow magically to comply, I don't think we would be dealing with the same dynamic we're dealing with today. Well, um, I mean, there's a lot of variables there to say uh, you think it would go this way. Um, it's really all we can I, do. I got to say that this just sounds to me like the most unlibertarian argument I, I could imagine. I, 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 the, the best case scenario is then maybe Europe could be subsidizing our defense. I don't think Europe should be subsidizing our defense. I'm not looking for handouts or like I don't I don't want to be on welfare from Europe. And I certainly don't think Europe should be on welfare from us. You know, if, if you're like, look, in World War One, we, they were basically fighting to a stalemate until America joined the war and tipped the balance and led to this total victory, which led to the Treaty of Versailles and Germany's nas uh, national humiliation. And it led to the rise of the, the, the Nazis. It led to the rise of the Soviet Union. It was like the worst decision we ever made. And, and to me, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's probably if we if there were no NATO, 
Um, I, I think it would much more likely to be a stalemate type situation in Europe right now. Russia is not dominating Europe. This makes no sense at all. Germany's GDP is way higher than Russia. Italy's got a higher GDP than Russia. Yeah. I mean, these were numbers before the war. I don't know exactly where they're at right sure. now. The, yeah, they're the, cool. the yeah, sanctions, close yeah, the, I, I don't know. The sanctions might have actually backfired and upped Russia's GDP. But, you know, there's just no like, no, I think that like, there's no reason for these advanced countries to have their defense. Again, like Eisenhower said, this was like, if we're still here in five years, we've, we've failed. And the point was that it was at least initially, I mean, I still wouldn't have supported it, but at least initially the idea was like, oh, these countries are in tatters, you know, like let's, let's subsidize their defense right now. This makes absolutely no sense 70 years later. It's, it's just, there's no reason for us to be like, subsidizing them or them to be subsidizing us now in in terms of what you're talking about with kind of like this argument which is the bill crystal neocon argument not saying you agree with them on everything but that's their <laughs> argument and it's sure. not nato that this is pax americana this is the liberal world order this is the post-war uh, world war ii global hegemony or whatever you want to call it the argument is they've kept the peace and like okay yes germany and russia haven't fought another war and right. Germany hasn't invaded France. Um, okay, that I mean, there's something to be said for that. Like, yeah, we've kept the peace, except all the places where we haven't. You know, like it's like okay, we've we've kept the peace in some areas, um, but in that world order, you know, it's just Vietnam or Korea, then Vietnam, then all the other little minor, you know, skirmishes in the nineties, um, like Serbia, as we mentioned before, yeah. um, there's then, and then of course, Iraq, the sanction regime on Iraq, Iraq war two, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, you know, like all of the, so, okay. That's, but that's not NATO. World, but, yeah. That's no, not NATO. NATO. That's the U S no, 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 no. But my point is that you're taking credit. You're giving NATO credit for what isn't just NATO is the entire global uh, world order. And like, okay, if you're going to take that credit that this has kept the peace, then okay. You also have to look at what the costs are for that. So no, it's not just NATO. NATO is the European military Alliance arm, as you just said, of America, of the American empire. I'm like, yeah. I don't it's think if, piece, if the U.S. Left, all the places that it hasn't. Yeah, I don't think the U. If the U.S. left NATO today, it would cease to exist. I think it would continue to exist, and it. it, it you know, I think it would actually, in a, in a way, might have a, a dynamic shift there as to who's paying what into the you know their own military expenses. But well, I don't I'm think I'm an American, so I'd be fine with that, and they can figure it all out. I mean, I'd like libertarianism to sweep every corner of the world, but I try to focus on like you know, if I could get my town to be more libertarian, I'd be happy with that. So I, I, I'd be happy with America leaving NATO if America left NATO. NATO is not what NATO is right now. NATO right now is the the arm of the American empire. It's kind of like saying like if America stops supporting Israel, then what is Israel? It's not it's not the same thing anymore. And so it's going to be a drastically different shakeup over there. Um, I do tend to agree with you that it would be for the better. So or, I don't uh, know if I'm agreeing with you. But I, no, I know where you. I know where you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're fine. Um, so let me ask it this way. If what what wars uh, I think we asked this at the beginning, but you know what wars was NATO directly responsible for starting? What it, it, was there any wars that we could have avoided if NATO hadn't ever existed? I don't I don't see any. I, so I um, think I think you're misplacing some of your criticism of NATO when we should be directing it at, at the United States or like in Libya, well, France was really heavily involved there. Yeah, I, I, I think, think that I think there are other issues. Sure. Well, I, I, I would argue that the Bucharest uh, um, uh, of the 2008 NATO meeting there where they announced that Georgia and Ukraine were entering NATO were at least partially responsible for the for creating the conditions for the war in Georgia and the war in Ukraine. That, but that's not saying they started the war exactly. But I think that's kind of not exactly the question. It's like, I don't know, what wars did they start? Well, I, I'm not exactly claiming they started wars. Again, it's kind of like if you had this organization that was like the Bloods and the Crips and the Latin Kings. And they all have a, as you call a voluntary, you know, agreement together. And then yep. that, you know, the Bloods go out and attack someone. And then the voluntary agreement comes in and like kills a bunch of innocent people. And you're going, well, that agreement didn't start the well, world. I mean, like, the, yeah, the I'm, I'm saying they The difference conducted... between that analogy, Dave, is, just real quick. The difference between that analogy is that in this case, you know, 
you're not going to have that volunteer that institution come in unless there's consensus among the members of the institution to actually act. Who cares if there's consensus amongst the Bloods and well, the Crips and the Latin Kings? <laughs> These are all a bunch of gangsters. Yeah, there's consensus that we should go like overthrow Gaddafi. Okay, I don't care. I'm not. I'm not like the question isn't whether they started the wars or not. The question is like, are they a defensive alliance or are they fighting in wars of aggression? incredibly destructive ones that kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the question. So yeah. Okay. I, you could say America started the war and then NATO just came in or something like that, or in Libya, uh, put it on France or whatever you want to, but I don't really see like, I don't think think that, I guess where I'm going with this, if you abolish NATO, I don't think any of those dynamics would change. Like the situation in, in Libya and Afghanistan, we had 30 countries in Afghanistan. I mean, there were many members that weren't NATO partners there. I don't think again, this is a false, this is a a false kind of like, or or it's, it's just not asking the right question. Yeah. Okay. Probably if you did, if you abolish NATO, but all of these gangs still existed. Yeah. Probably there would still be some of these gang fights, but that's not an argument for them existing. And that's not a defense for their role that they played in Afghanistan. I mean, like they actually got the war got turned over to Afghanistan. I mean, excuse me, the war in Afghanistan got turned over to NATO for a little period of time, although they kind of backed off that and the Americans took back uh, over control. But that was kind of like what enabled America to go focus on Iraq. Um, So, no, the existence of NATO does not lead to less of these conflicts. I think the, the overwhelming evidence is that it leads to much more. And like, you know, look, there would have been a million different ways to do this better. I think the best thing that could have happened, man, is like, if NATO had just been abolished when the Soviet Union collapsed, I think there would have been an unbelievable opportunity, you know, to have like a whole a whole different European dynamic. And and I think back then Russia would have really been willing to to come to the table a lot more. It's such a shame. That this uh, you know, and, and actually, I'll give you a couple points there, because I think that the argument for abolishing NATO in the 90s was way stronger than it is today. The reason why is because of what we're seeing with these Russian wars of aggression. And I think that dynamic has shifted for me, um, at least until this conflict kind of resolves itself. That's one of the reasons why I'm not fully there with you. But I mean, I think that that argument actually would be pretty strong in the 90s. And I actually don't disagree with that example. Like, well, I think yeah, I mean. So I disagree that the dyna- like I, I think it's still a strong argument, but yeah, I mean, look, man, just think like what a show of good faith that would have been. I mean, this is what this is what uh, George Kennan, again, the harsh cold warrior said. He goes, "What are you guys doing in the '90s when the, uh, the NATO expansion first started?" He goes, "You're picking a fight with Russia. This isn't the Soviet Union. These are the heroes who overthrew them." Like, why are you treating them like they're the enemy too? And and look, even when you see just like this Nord Stream pipeline that. You know, Ukraine or Ukraine allies blew up and we all know what that is. Like, even when you see that, it's like, what was the Nord Stream pipeline? This was like, think about this from a libertarian or a classical liberal perspective. This was like the greatest thing ever. This, You know, you're talking about like, uh, like what, what Europe would look like. Imagine Germany and Russia making this like interconnected business deal. Where they both benefits, right? Like the old, like where goods don't cross borders, armies do. This was like the the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world was when Germany and Russia went to war. I think in World War II, I think it was 30 million people died just in the conflict between Germany and Russia. And here they make this deal where it's like, oh, look, Germany is going to kind of be relying on Russia and Russia is going to make a whole bunch of money from Germany. They're going to kind of be interdependent. Like from any libertarian perspective, this is like the greatest thing ever. And so, of course, what is everybody, every politician in America, from Donald Trump to Joe Biden to all of them? Oh, this is a problem. You can't be doing business with Russia because they're the big bad Russia. It's like we're this whole Pax Americana fights at every turn for Russia to be integrated and be peaceful like European neighbors. And honestly, I mean, aside from all of that, like it's just not our place, man. It's just understood. Not you're our not place, gonna, man. and you're not gonna actually have me fight at all. I mean, actually, a lot of the reasons why I would agree with you that you, anyone in Europe should be able to trade with whoever they want is the same reason why I'm so passionate about Ukrainians being able to decide which alliance they want to join or who they want to trade with and not be threatened by the force of Russia or the U.S. I mean, be bullied around. So I think there's a similar line that kind of goes I just, through. That. I think you. I agree. I think Ukraine, in a sense, should be able to join whatever alliance they want to join. I think we should also be able to choose who we want to join in an alliance with, and I don't think we should choose this one. So I'm not even arguing Ukraine shouldn't want to be a part of NATO. I'm saying we shouldn't have them. Understood. Because I think it might result in a nuclear war. Understood. Um, I are we? How are we at with time, Casey? I think we're about at our hour. I can. Yeah, we try to we try to keep it under. Well, we try to keep it under 45 minutes, but we figured this was just going to keep going. So <laughs> yeah, we're way over time. How it goes. 
Um, yeah. Do you, either of you guys have any final kind of final summations? I'm happy to kind of summarize, like you know, kind of summarize my perspective on the whole thing, and then Dave, maybe you could take us out. Um, you know, I think that one of the one of the core one of the core things that I'd like to say about this is, if we have a libertarian world, truly like a, a global libertarian order, the thing that we probably all agree with, and I'm not talking about some sort of military order or anything. I'm talking about a world where countries everywhere embrace libertarian ideas and libertarian values, the idea of cooperation and not coercion. And the idea that people should be free to trade and interact with each other. I think you would see more organizations um, that operate similarly to NATO, defensive alliances across the world. And I think that while there's a lot of criticism about NATO, and I think we we really touched on a lot of that today, and I think it was a very interesting conversation. Um, I think that uh, inherently, which I think we agree with, defensive alliances are not are not opposed to libertarianism. And, and you would see organizations like that. And wherever there's people, there's imperfect systems. And I think we all know that. Wherever there's people, there's imperfect systems. But in a in a world with a libertarian order, you're going to see a lot more organizations like this. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. But I just to wrap it up and then hand it off to Dave, I just want to say I really appreciate you coming in and being like civil and having this conversation. It's very often when we try to engage with this back and forth, especially within the party, it's very toxic and there's like a lot of blocking going on and no one's willing to talk. So really appreciate the fact that you ate, were like sitting here articulate your views and listening to us and like having a discourse like civil discourse is very enjoyable and i earned a lot of respect for you so again thank you um and i hope we can do it again soon well thank thank you very much for that and i just right back at you and like i i appreciate that i it is like look man Twitter is just like toxic, <laughs> it's toxic. Dude. and I know it's me too. I know I'm not like above it too. Like, it's just like, it's just like these short quips. And the only thing you can do, you can't really elaborate on the point. So the only thing you can do is just try to like dunk on whoever you're going at the quickest. I know I'm as guilty of it as anyone else, but I do appreciate that. I kind of like, I don't know you guys. So I didn't really know what to expect coming into this. I was like, all right, this is going to go one of two ways. <laughs> Either we're going to have a conversation about these things or it's going to be, they're going to be right away. Like you're a Nazi or something. I, I had a feeling it was going to do the same thing. It went well. I'm so glad. I, I appreciate you guys. Like I, like I'm saying, I can do the other way too, but I'd kind of rather do this because this is like what I actually care about. Um, is like talking about these ideas. So I, I appreciate that uh, from both of you very much. And um, I think uh, this, I think all of this stuff is important. Oh, dude, that'd be great if Jonathan just left and then just came back cursing <laughs> me out like right after that. We're having. This, I think his uh, wife moment. walked in the room or something. Um, I will. Uh, I will say that I. I think that. Look, I don't. I, like, okay, I don't disagree with you that like, look, we want to see a complete libertarian world where the whole world is libertarian. Um, that's that's like I am in theory a libertarian universalist. I believe that freedom is like a universal principle and that individual liberty, like I'd love to see a global, you know, embrace of, of libertarianism. I also think that like you can have these principles and also live within the confines of the real world. And recognize that like it is such a daunting challenge that we would ever turn one country truly libertarian, let alone turn the entire world that way. What would happen if the whole world was libertarian? Uh, maybe there'd be these defensive alliances. Maybe there wouldn't be any of them. Maybe there'd be no entangling alliances. And it would just be like peacekeeping missions and negotiators and stuff like that. I kind of actually think the latter is more likely than the prior. But that's one of the beautiful things about freedom. You don't really know. It's very, very hard to predict. If you were going to predict 100 years ago what free markets would have produced, there'd be no chance you could have gotten it right, no matter what type of brilliant genius you are. You're just, there's too many variables. Um, so I don't know about that. I do think that in the real world, like in the situation that we're dealing with right now, we're in an incredibly dangerous situation. And much like what I thought was so heroic about Ron Paul uh, in his like 2008 campaign and that Giuliani moment, which everyone knows of. I remember it. Yep. Is it's. It's not just that he was telling the truth. It's that he was like kind of telling the most unpopular truth. And he was also kind of giving, like for me personally, the impact it had on me. Is it kind of like, it, it almost like was like this, um, like this portal to engage with thoughts that were completely outside of the world that I had even been given permission to engage with. Like, oh, you could think about what the American empire looks like from outside the American empire. You know, and like in the George W. Bush years, it was all like about like how America feels about 9-11. And then you're almost like, oh, wait, there's this whole other world outside of our empire who has a whole feeling about all the 9-11s that we've imposed on them. And that's interesting to think about. And 
you know, I'm not saying Vladimir Putin's not a bad guy for invading uh, uh, Ukraine, even though I believe he was provoked and that NATO and the U.S. did all this messed up stuff. I still think it's not excusable to invade and kill innocent people. But like if Ron Paul had just gone on stage in 2008 and said, you know, I think Osama bin Laden's a really bad guy. 9-11 was wrong. Terrorism is bad. I mean, that is technically all true, but it just adds nothing. It's just like there's nothing of value to add there. And I think that libertarians as dissidents to this incredible, incredibly tyrannical regime that we live under. Like, I think our role is to add the thing that's kind of unpopular that other people aren't saying. And we are dangerously close to like a true calamity here. And I think we should be like, if we're going to do anything, I think we should be pushing to try to um, try to end it. Not try to sit like these ridiculous ideas that like, well, we're going to just look what these war criminals in Washington, D.C. want to do is pro is prolong this war for another decade and bleed Russia dry. That's what they want. They think they can do that while avoiding a nuclear war. It's a really, really risky game. I think we should be demanding peace immediately, demanding. An, and what are we doing? We're sending in weapons of war to a, a to a hot war on Russia's border. It's, we're basically committing an act of war. We're treating Ukraine like they're a NATO country, even though they're not. And this is madness, and I'm against it. Again, thank you guys both so much for for having me. I, I did really enjoy this. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me. And no, I was not cussing you out. My one of my kids walked <laughs> in, even though they should have been in bed like an hour or two ago. So that's oh, that's I appreciate. What, I, that's I was, get that. So I got I got babies. So like they, I I do too. How many babies, Dave? Well, I, I mean, babies. When I say I think of my my daughter's four and my boy's one, so okay. Not, I have a really I have I have a one and a half year old, and I'm about to have the second one. So wish me luck. Um, oh, congratulations, dude! That's awesome. Yeah, the second boy. one is so much easier. Third one's the easiest. And it's not. It's like the third one just doesn't even exist. He like floats around, and you never see or hear him. At least for Good to know. Good beginning. to know. Good I think know. I saw a Jordan Peterson clip where he was like, "He goes, I recommend having three kids because like once you got two. Hey, that's my number, Dave. Third. What's That's where I'm in. We, we, we're going to try to go for three and then call it there. So we'll see. how I'm one of six and that was too much chaos. It's oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I would do, I would do six in a second, but it's all about what my wife will do. I will have as many kids as she will have for me. I feel that I feel she that. does it's... have to do a lot more. For sure. For sure. All right, Dave. Thanks for thanks for jumping on. Appreciate the conversation. You have a good evening. Absolutely. Thanks, you too, guys. And congratulations. Best of luck with everything, Joshua. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.